1 Samuel 27, where we're going to be considering the entire chapter plus the first two verses of chapter 28, because that chapter break between 27 and 28 probably shouldn't be there. So all of 27, and then the first two verses of chapter 28. It's been 10 weeks since we were last in 1 Samuel, so as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me remind you just briefly of what's going on at this point in the narrative. It's probably not hard to remember. David has been on the run for his life from Saul, and he's been on the run since chapter 18. You'll remember that Saul turned from the Lord. He disobeyed God's Word. He wanted nothing to do with repentance and faith. And as a consequence, God took the kingship from Saul, and He raised up David to sit on Israel's throne. But so far, David's rise has been bumpy, to say the least. His life has been threatened. He's been living in caves and in the wilderness. He's hunted like prey. That's been David's life since chapter 18. We don't know how long it's been exactly, but even just a few months of that would be enough to break anyone. So David may be a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man on the run. Our passage picks up at what seems to be David's breaking point. The years on the run appear to catch up with the weary king-to-be, and David decides it's time for a change in strategy. So, let's listen now to God's Word and see what we might learn from our brother David. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jehalmalites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so has David done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking 
He has made Himself an utter stench to His people Israel. Therefore, He shall always be My servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with Me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you My bodyguard for life. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we know that every time we open the Bible, we are hearing the very words of God spoken to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by the men of old, kept free from error, preserved, Father, perfectly in truth and in righteousness so that we might know the very mind of God We pray now that You would open our minds to understand Your Word. That You would unstop our ears to hear. That You would soften our hearts to repent and believe. That You would give us grace, God, to see the face of our Savior here in 1 Samuel 27. I pray, God, that You would keep me from error. I pray that You would grant Your people discernment. Lord, I pray that You would move by Your Holy Spirit and that You would strengthen our faith today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at Midtown Baptist, we believe our ministry as a church should be God-centered. If you've been through our Membership Matters class, then you might remember this is foundational to what we do as a church. From the songs we sing, to the discipleship we practice, to the sermons we preach, we seek to keep God in all of His magnificent glory at the center We do this because we believe this is how a church actually does good to its members and to the world. Remember, friends, as biblical Christians, we believe that God is the one essential piece for human flourishing. You add God and people flourish. You add God and this world flourishes. So in order for the world and our lives to work as God intended, we must have God at the center. He must reign supreme. And then from His place of supremacy, rivers of goodness and mercy and grace flow into our lives and then out of our lives into the lives of others. That's how God intended the world to work. We want to be a God-centered church. So, you can imagine my surprise this week as I studied and realized that 1 Samuel 27 contains no reference to God. We want to be a God-centered church, and here we are hoping to hear a God-centered sermon, but we've come across what appears to be a God-less text. It's actually quite striking. There are 240 references to the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, in 1 Samuel, and not one of them shows up in this chapter. There are 90 references to God, in 1 Samuel. And again, not one in this chapter. What are we to make of this? Did our author slip up and leave out this essential detail? Did he overlook God? Hardly. The sum of God's Word is truth, so we know there is no mistake in Scripture, not even in how the individual chapters are put together. What we have before us in 1 Samuel is precisely what God wants us to have. So then, what are we to make of this? It's clearly purposeful. It's clearly purposeful. But what exactly is that purpose? 
Well, I go back to that distinctive of being God-centered. This passage shows us how vital, how essential that distinctive is for the life of God's people. You probably noticed as we read that this chapter is not David's finest moment. There are some questions about his behavior. There are some puzzling decisions. I'm not implying that we should sit in judgment over David, but at the same time, we cannot overlook the conclusion that on some level, David acts without reference to God. On some level, he fails to be God-centered. Friends, that's the connection from David's life to ours. Anytime we read the Bible, we're seeking to build bridges from their day to our day. Here's the bridge. David fails to act without reference to God. This chapter is a caution, friends. It's a caution. It shows us how things go when we lose sight of God and strike out on our own. It's like when the electricity goes out in your house and you walk around still flipping all the light switches. You don't realize how much you depend upon it till you don't have it. 1 Samuel 27 is the same way. We don't realize how much we need God at the center till He's not. That's what this chapter is showing us. It's the takeaway of the text. It cautions us, it exhorts us once more to the pursuit of the God-centered life. In fact, that's what I'd like to draw your attention to this morning. Let's consider three exhortations from David's life that call us to fix our eyes on the all-glorious God. Three exhortations that can lead us to the God-centered life. The first is found in verses 1 to 3. David's life exhorts us to remember whose hand is sovereign. Remember whose hand is sovereign. The change from chapter 26 to chapter 27 is quite startling. You can see it there in your Bibles. Look with me. At the end of chapter 26, David declares his confidence in the Lord. He proclaims to Saul, of all people, that God will deliver him out of all tribulation. Friends, that's a confident believer. That's a man whose eyes are fixed on the hand of God. But then look at how chapter 27 begins. What has David's attention now? Not God's hand, but Saul's. Notice again what David says. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Did you hear it, friends? At the beginning and at the end, twice, David speaks of needing to escape Saul's hand. But not once does he mention God's. Now, on one level, we have to admit that David is certainly in a tight spot. I can't relate to him at this point, and you probably can't either. Not only is his life threatened, but he's got his family and his 600 men and their families for whom he's responsible. Where's he going to get tomorrow's meal? Where are they going to sleep tonight? It's one thing to be in the midst of hardship yourself. It's another thing entirely to be responsible to care for and protect others through it as well. And David has a small army with him. That's David's situation. So we should have at least some sympathy as we evaluate his decision. But on another level, we have to also be honest and acknowledge that David's judgment is misguided. 
I mean, to put it very bluntly, his conclusion in verse 1 is wrong. And there's ample evidence to prove David's error. Go back with me in your minds to chapter 18, and let's just recount all that has happened between David and Saul. Twice, David has been in a helpless position when Saul hurled his spear at him, and twice, David escaped. Twice David was betrayed by people around him, and both times the Lord delivered him. What's more, twice Saul's life has been in David's hand, proving that despite Saul's best efforts, the Lord would certainly deliver and protect David. Friends, do you feel the cumulative weight of that history? Saul has been relentless, but time after time the Lord's hand has thwarted Saul's plans. But that history reveals David's problem at this point. Notice in verse 1 that he does not mention any of that. It's a striking omission. There's no mention of God. No mention of spears that missed. No mention of providential escapes in chapters 19, 23, 24, and 26. None of that. David judges his life without reference to God. All he can see is Saul. That's all he can see. And that's exactly why David goes astray. Brothers and sisters, part of what the Lord wants us to see at this point is the necessity and power of simply remembering who God is and what He has done. Remembering who God is and what He's done. David makes this misguided decision because he forgets. He forgets the character of God. That God is sovereign, faithful, good, and just. He forgets the promise of God. How the Lord certainly promised David the throne of Israel and then confirmed that promise through the mouth of Jonathan and through the mouth of Abigail. And he forgets the work of God. How time after time the Lord delivered him. He forgets all of that. Imagine the difference it would have made for David to pause here and remember Friends, that's the takeaway for us. One of the keys to perseverance in the faith is the practice of remembering. Instead of listening to the unbelief of our hearts, we should speak to our hearts and remind ourselves of all the reasons we have to trust our sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, do you preach to yourself that way? Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that So many of our problems come from the fact that we're listening to ourselves more than we're speaking to ourselves. Do you preach to yourself that way? Every Christian is a preacher on some level. It's just the congregation of your own heart. Do you preach to yourself these things? Do you rehearse the character of God, focusing on His attributes and how they apply to your situation? Do you know the character of God well enough to rehearse those attributes? Do you remember how God has worked both in Scripture and in your own life? Listen, there's no magic formula for perseverance. (laughs) You can't make it easy. It's going to be hard. But this practice is so essential. Remember, know the character of God, brothers and sisters, and remember it. Time spent knowing God is never wasted. Let me say that again. Time spent... Knowing God is never wasted. It befuddles me sometimes when 
people say to me, yeah, I've been reading the Bible regularly, but I haven't learned anything relevant about my life. I've just learned about God. Excuse me? You've just learned about God? That's relevant. That's the definition of relevant. Time spent knowing God is never wasted. What's more, remember and recount how He has worked in your life. Write down those moments where it was clear that God worked for you and for your family. Tell them to your children. Tell them to your friends. Don't let God's work in your life be nothing more than history. Bring it into the present by remembering and rehearsing what He's done. Remember. But you might be saying to yourself, okay, well, I mean, how do I do that exactly? What does that practice look like in the real world? Well, I'm glad you asked. We actually find a wonderful example of how to do this from God's Word. Psalm 77 to be exact. And I think it would be instructive to just take a few minutes here and think about this particular psalm as a means of application. In Psalm 77, the psalmist is crushed under the weight of his hardship. His days are so difficult he can't sleep. He even wonders if God Himself is holding His eyelids open so that He can't find any rest. That's how hard things have become for the psalmist. Listen to what he says. This is in the Bible, friends. This kind of language. Has God's steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Friends, have you ever been in a place like that? That sounds like a man who's about to lose it. That doesn't sound like a believer who's ready to walk ahead in confident perseverance. Have you ever been there? Then comes the change. Listen to how this weary, beleaguered man fights for faith. Notice his strategy. The psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And then, this is the key. And then do you know what the psalmist does? For the remainder of the psalm, he goes on to recount Israel's exodus from Egypt. That's amazing, friends. The psalmist was not alive during the exodus. But that doesn't matter to him. The psalmist belongs to God's people. So what God did in the past, He did for me. That's what the psalmist says. What God did in the past, He's able to do in the present. What's more, God never changes. So His work in the past encourages us to trust Him in the present. The exodus is your testimony, friends. The defeat of Jericho is your testimony. The multiplying of the loaves and the fish is your testimony. If God delivered His people from mighty Pharaoh, and if God parted the Red Sea for salvation, then surely the psalmist is preaching to himself, surely God will sustain and save me. He has nothing in the present to teach him the truth, so he looks to the past and he remembers. The psalmist remembers. We can only wonder how different things might have been for David at this point had he remembered God's hand as opposed to focusing on Saul's. But before we sit in judgment over David, we should also ask ourselves, what am I remembering? Where's my attention focused? What am I remembering each day as I seek to walk the road of discipleship by faith? 
That's the exhortation of David's life at this point. He exhorts us to remember whose hand is sovereign. And it's God's hand. Our brother David has more to teach us. And in verses 4-12, to we find a second exhortation. Recognize the limits of your own wisdom. Recognize the limits of your own wisdom. By this point, David, his men, and their families have settled among the Philistines. Verses 2 and 3 describe the unusual scene. Here we have Israel's rightful king in exile, so to speak, living among Israel's enemies. It's strange enough to make you pause and ask, what exactly is going on here? How is this going to work? But beginning in verse 4, it appears David's plan is nothing short of a success. Based solely on the results, David seems to have pulled it off. Perhaps his scheme was wise after all. I mean, scan through the passage with me and notice the apparent outcome of David's decision. First of all, David finds security. Notice verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, Saul no longer sought him. You see, it's a success. It's a success. David moved in hopes of escaping Saul, and that's what happened. At least on the surface, David finds security. That's not all. David also finds provision. Look at verses 5 to 7. David asks Achish for a city where David and his men can live. This is a shrewd request on David's part. He's playing on Achish's pride. Why should such a great and renowned king like Achish have to live in the same city as a lowly servant like David? Why not just give me my own city and then you can be rid of me? That would be much easier. It's shrewd. And it works. In keeping with the customs of the day, Achish provides the city of Ziklag to David. A city that was supposed to belong to the tribe of Judah anyway. It's a bit of an ironic twist stuck in here. David, who is of the tribe of Judah, wins his people's rightful city, but he does it without having to lift a sword. But the point we need to note here is that in receiving Ziklag, David finds provision. I mean, think about it. For probably the first time in a number of months, they have a place to lay down and sleep. they got walls around them, a roof over their head. Their families have a secure place to live. Their little ones don't have to worry about being snatched in the middle of the night. It's a big deal. Again, based on the results, David's wisdom seems to be winning the day. He's winning. Success. In fact, that's the last piece of the picture. David finds just unbridled success. Notice verses 8 through 12. David and his men head out on raiding parties that are stunningly fruitful. David strikes against the ancient enemies of Israel, and each time he is victorious. David is so victorious, in fact, that he's able to bring some of the spoils back to Achish. You see, he's endearing himself to this Philistine king. Achish is getting richer because of David's exploits. Of course, there's more to the story, isn't there? In reporting back to Achish, David is less than forthright. David tells Achish that he's been raiding against his own people, against the tribe of Judah. And this, in turn, causes Achish to think David is absolutely loyal to the Philistines. David's ruse works. He succeeds in diffusing any suspicion 
Akish might have about his motives. Now you might ask, isn't this a dangerous plan? What if somebody escapes and tells Akish the truth? Well, notice how David deals with that potential problem. Verse 9, he wipes the people out. If there are no survivors, then there are no eyewitnesses. Problem solved. We'll come back to this in just a few minutes, but for now what I want to stress to you is that throughout these endeavors, David finds success. Everything is working out just as he would have hoped. You couldn't draw it up any better. The circumstances appear to vindicate David's decision. He's found security, provision, and now success. But that's not the end of the story. David finds something else during his time among the Philistines, and that something is a major dilemma. Notice the first two verses of chapter 28. Achish decides to do what a Philistine typically does. He decides to attack Israel. But here's the problem. He expects David to fight alongside the Philistines. It appears David's scheme has worked too well. His ruse has been too convincing. Achish thinks David is a traitor. He thinks he's a turncoat. And so now David is stuck. If he fights against Israel, then there's no, there's no going back. Forget about the throne. Forget about your people. Probably even forget about your allegiance to Yahweh. If you lift the sword against Israel, you're done. And yet at the same time, if he doesn't fight with Achish, then the gig is up. And the Philistine king is likely to be way more efficient in his lethal intentions than Saul ever was. So David is stuck. You see the dilemma? How's he going to get out of this? Things were going so well. They were going so well for David's plan. His wisdom seemed to answer the needs at every step along the way. And now, he's stuck. In the course of the book, our author does something interesting here. He actually presses pause on David's dilemma. He just stops, full stop, at the end of verse 2. And we don't get the resolution until chapter 29. The author is going to take us on a little detour with Saul that we'll consider next week. So for now, we're just left hanging. We're just left hanging here, wondering what's going to happen? What is David going to do? But that's a good thing that we're left hanging because it gives us time to consider what we might learn here. As Richard Phillips points out in his helpful commentary, perhaps the best way to process David's actions is by considering two different proverbs from the Old Testament. On the one hand, we think here of Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way to death. For a time, David's plan works. The results are good. They're really good. And it all probably seemed so right to him. Why should I rethink this? Everything's working. It all seems good. So he just keeps going. But where did it end? In a terrible dilemma that could prove deadly. Do you see the connection, friends? We must recognize there's a limit to our own wisdom. We can only see so far, and our sight is rarely, if ever, far enough. I mean, as David learned here, judging a decision based solely on the results is not biblical wisdom. To say that the ends justify the means is to say something contrary to the Bible. 
The ends never justify the means. Just because David found success for a time doesn't make his decision the right one. There is a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it very well could lead to destruction. So let this be a caution, friends. Check your thinking against the perfect wisdom of God's Word. Consult the wisdom of godly believers who can help you see past the cold, calculating pragmatism of our day. Just because it works doesn't make it right. Let me say that again. Because I'm disturbed at how quickly evangelicals jump into the boat of pragmatism as it goes crashing over the cliff of destruction. Just because it works doesn't make it right. And simply because you find some relief doesn't make it wise. Instead, we should remember the teaching of another proverb. This time, Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Friends, that's why David gets in trouble here because he's leaning on his own understanding. He's not trusting in the Lord with his whole heart. David's depending on his own wisdom to get him out of this problem. Now, to be sure, we should use the understanding God has given us and we should apply whatever wisdom we have. But, and here's the key, we shouldn't lean on it. That, that language there in Proverbs is so important. We shouldn't lean on our own understanding as though it were our final support. Our support is the wisdom of God. Or it should be. And through faith, we lean on God for guidance and protection. Brothers and sisters, that's the takeaway here for us. David's life is exhorting us to recognize the limits of our own understanding. There's a great song from an old Christian recording artist, Rich Mullins, and the song's entitled, We're Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And we could adjust the title and apply it here as well. We're not as wise as we think we are. We're not as understanding as we think we are. We're not as far-sighted as we think we are. So we should recognize the limits of our own wisdom, and that in turn should deepen our dependence on God, on His Word, and on our fellow believers in the church. We should recognize those limits. That brings us to one final exhortation from David's life, this time focusing specifically on verse 9. David's life exhorts us to rejoice that God's kingdom rests on the gospel, not our worthiness. Rejoice that God's kingdom rests on the gospel, not our worthiness. At this point, we come face to face with David's actions while among the Philistines, particularly his decision to kill all those people in verse 9. What are we to make of David's decision? Was he right to raid those people with such brutality? Well, on the one hand, we could say yes. He was right to do so. Remember, the Lord God instructed the Israelites to wipe out all the inhabitants of Canaan. This practice was called the ban. Put them under the ban, God said. And the Lord was very clear as to why it was needed. If those people remained in the land, then they would lead Israel into idolatry. And I don't mean just bowing down to little statues. I mean giving their hearts over to things that are not God's. 
And if you know your Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happened. The Israelites did not drive out the Canaanite peoples. And eventually, not very long, God's people were led astray into idolatry. So, we could see David's decision to wipe out these people as the fulfillment of God's command to drive out the idolatrous pagans from the promised land. As Israel's true king, David does what the people failed to do. He leads Israel where they could not lead themselves. That's one way we could read the passage. And I think it's a legitimate way to read it. On the other hand, we could also read David as going beyond what is necessary in this situation. It's interesting to me to note that in almost every other instance where the ban was instituted, it was preceded by a clear command from God to do so. So I know the ladies' Bible study just finished going through Joshua. God told them to institute the ban before they did it, right? Even in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told them to put the Amalekites under the ban before they decided to do it. I didn't look up every instance, but I'm relatively confident that in almost every other instance where the ban is instituted, it's preceded by a clear command from God. We have no record of a command from God telling David to destroy these people here in 1 Samuel 27. It appears David wipes out these people for convenience' sake, not for obedience' sake. He's covering his tracks. Not fulfilling God's command to Israel. That's the other way you could read this text. So which one is it? Which reading is right? Well, that's a tough interpretive decision. I would say that while David's circumstances were legitimately difficult, he was wrong to exercise such brutality because of the issue of motives. Why? Why is he doing it? I think he's doing it to cover his tracks. He could have raided these people without so much bloodshed. That's the way I read it. But that raises another question, one that I would say is much more important than the ethics of David's decision. By the way, the text doesn't really care what you think about the ethics of David's decision. That's not the burden of the text. What I'm about to say is the burden of the text. It's the question of our response and what it reveals about our understanding of God's kingdom. Let's just be honest for a moment. There's some part of verse 9 that bothers us. There's some part of this that bothers us. David is Israel's anointed king, but even more than that, all of of God's redemptive promises are now going to flow through David. From this point forward, let's just be really clear, from this point forward, the hopes of God's people are focused on David and his line. And yet, and yet, here we have the anointed king acting with brutality. Here we have the anointed king acting like any other sinner. Shouldn't David be different? Shouldn't he be a paragon of virtue? Shouldn't he be a picture of perfection? If he's the king, why is he so flawed? Why is he so much like me? A mixture of faith and unbelief. The answer, friends, is simply this. Because God's kingdom rests on the gospel of His grace, not our worthiness. That's the reason why. 
Understand, brothers and sisters, David is the anointed king, but he's not the Christ. If nothing else, this passage should cause us to recognize that as great as David is, he's not our Savior. He's not the Redeemer. There must be someone greater to come. Someone whose life is not such a mixture of faith and unbelief. There must be a king coming who trusts in the Lord with all his heart and leans not on his own understanding. That's how we read this passage as Christians. It's driving us to see just how much we need David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I cannot stress this enough. I'm just going to be really clear. If we're upset that God would use such a flawed person like David, then we might not understand the Gospel. If we're upset that such a pivotal figure in God's kingdom could go astray, then we might not understand our own place in that kingdom. David did not deserve a place in God's kingdom, and that's the point. Neither do you and I. And until we abandon all attempts to hold on to our own worthiness, we will not cherish the gospel as we ought. As long as we hold on to some vestige of our own worthiness, we'll always see the gospel as that little something extra that God just puts on the top because we couldn't make it all the way to perfection. But that's not the good news of the kingdom of God, friends. The good news is that we're all brutal rebels who act in foolishness and deserve nothing but destruction. And yet, what does the Almighty God do? He chooses to save rebels like us. Why? Why? Why would God do that? Because He is gracious. And I don't just mean in that heavenly grandfather kind of way where He winks at sin and lets you get away with stuff. I mean gracious in that He takes what we deserved, hell, and He puts it on His Son, and He gives us what we don't deserve, life in His presence, and He does it all without a single ounce of regard for what kind of people we are. That's grace. That's why God saves anyone. And His kingdom rests on that gospel of grace, not our worthiness. So before we throw David under the bus of our own self-righteousness, let's allow this text to do its work in our hearts. Let's allow this chapter to expose those subtle ways we posture and position ourselves as somehow deserving a place at Christ's table. We don't deserve a place in God's kingdom. And that's why the Gospel is good news. You see, even with his questionable decision... David exhorts us to rejoice, to rejoice that God's kingdom rests on the gospel and certainly not on our worthiness. That's good news. God-centered. That's what we want our life and ministry as a church to be. We want it to be God-centered. And in His providence, the Lord has used this chapter that appears to be God-less to exhort us to press on with that pursuit. Whatever the situation, God's hand is sovereign, even when we can't see it. Despite the results, there's always a limit to our own wisdom, so we shouldn't lean on it. And amazingly, amazingly, God's kingdom is open to sinners like David and sinners like us. People who easily wander off tracks, sinners who every day stand in need of the gospel of God's grace. 
So, brothers and sisters, may we be quick to confess our sin, pursue repentance, and trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the God-centered life. And by His grace, may we pursue that life together until the Lord Jesus returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Life in this world is often like a sojourn in a thirsty, dry desert. And every time we open Your Word, it's like thirst-quenching water for our souls. Thank You for Your Word, God. Thank You for the Spirit's illumination. Thank You that in every page of the Bible, we see the just unspeakably beautiful face of Christ. Help us to hold fast to Him, God. And oh, how we plead with You that You would send Him soon to gather His church and to finish His work so that we might all be dwelling together in the presence of God. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In His name, amen. Would you all stand with me as we end the day?